Book 6, Chapter 31, Part 1 of Marie Antoinette and Her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Mulbach. Fouché. The First Consul was walking with hasty steps up and down his cabinet. His eyes flashed and his face, which elsewhere was impenetrable, like that of the brazen statues of the Roman emperors, disclosed the fiery impatience and stormy passions which raged within him. His lips, which were pressed closely together, opened now and then to mutter a word of threat or of anger, and that word he hurled like a poisoned arrow directly at the man who, in a respectful attitude and with pallid cheeks, stood not far from the door near the table covered with papers. This man was Fouché, formerly the chief of police in Paris and now a mere member of the Senate of the Republic. He had gone to the Tuileries in order to request a secret audience of Bonaparte, who had now forgotten the little prefix of thirst to his consular title and now reigned supreme and alone over France. Bonaparte suddenly paused in his rapid walk, coming to a halt directly in front of Fouché and looked at him with flaming eyes as if there were two daggers with which he meant to pierce deep into his heart. But Fouché did not see this, for he stood with downcast eyes and appeared not to be aware that Bonaparte was so near him. Fouché, cried the consul violently, I know you, and I am not to be deceived by your indifferent, affected air. You shall know that I do not fear you, you and all the goats that you can conjure up. You think that you frighten me. You wish that I should pay you dearly for your secret. But you shall know that I am not at all of a timorous nature, and that I shall pay no money for the solution of a riddle which I may perhaps be able to solve without your help. I warn you, sir, you secret vendor, be well on your guard. You have your spies, but I have my police, and they inform me about everything out of the usual course. It is known, sir, that you are carrying on a correspondence with people out of the country. Understand me, with people out of the country. Consul, replied Fouché calmly, I have certainly not known that the Republic forbids its faithful servants to send letters abroad. The Republic will never allow one of its servants to correspond with its enemies, cried Bonaparte in thundering tones. Be silent, sir. No evasions, no circumlocutions, but to speak plainly and to the point. You are in correspondence with the Count de Lille. You know that, Consul, for I have had the honour to give you a letter myself, which the pretender directed to you and sent to me to be delivered. A ridiculous, nonsensical letter, replied Bonaparte with a shrug. A letter in which this fool demands of me to bring him back to France and to indicate the place which I wish to occupy in his government. By my word, an idiot would not write a more crazy document. I am to indicate the place which I wish to occupy in his government. Well, I shall do that, but there will be no place left near me for the Bourbons, whom France has spewed out as one spews out mortal poison. These hated and weak Bourbons shall never attain to power and prestige again. France has turned away from them. France abhors this degenerate race of kings. 
It will erect a new edifice of power and glory, but there will be no room in it for the Bourbons. Mark that, intriguer, and build no air castles on it. I demand of you an open confession, for I shall accuse you as a traitor and a royalist. Consul, I shall not avoid this charge, replied Fouché calmly, and I am persuaded that France will follow with interest the course of a trial which will unveil an important secret, which will inform it that the rightful king of France, according to the opinion of Consul Bonaparte, did not die in the temple under the tender care of Simon the Cobbler, but is still alive, and is, therefore, the true heir of the crown. That would occasion some joy to the royalists, surely. The consul stamped on the floor with rage. His eyes shot flames, and when he spoke again, his voice rang like peals of thunder. So angrily and so powerfully did it pour forth. I will change the peons and the joy of these royalists to lamentations and wailings, he cried. All the enemies of France shall know that I hold the sword in my hands and mean to use it, not only against foes without, but foes within. France has given me this sword, and I shall not lay it down, even if all the kings of Europe and all the Bourbons who lie in the vaults of Saint-Denis leave their graves to demand it from me. I am the living sword of France, and never shall this sword bow before the sceptre of a Bourbon. Fresh shoots might sooner spring from the dead stick which the wanderer carries through the desert than a Bourbon sceptre could grow from the sword of Bonaparte. And all the same, whether this Bourbon calls himself Louis the Seventeenth or Louis the Eighteenth, mark that, Fouché, and mark also that when I wouldn't say I will, I shall know how to make my will good, even if the whole world ventures to confront me. I know that, Consul, said Fouché with deference. God gave you, for the will of France, an iron will and a brain of fire, and destined you to wear not only laurels, but crowns. Flame glared from the eyes of the consul, and played over the face of Fouché. But the latter appeared not to notice it, for he cast down his eyes again, and his manner was easy and unconstrained. You now speak a word which is not becoming, said Bonaparte calmly. I am the first servant of the Republic, and in a Republic there are no crowns. Not citizens' crowns, General, asked Fouché with a faint smile. I mean that this noblest of crowns can everywhere be acceptable, and no head has merited such a crown more than the noble Consul Bonaparte, who has made the Republic of France a worthy rival of its sister in North America. Bonaparte threw his head back proudly. I am not ambitious of the honour, he said, of being Washington of France. Yet you are he, General, replied Fouché with a smile. Only the Washington of France does not live in the White House, which a republic has built, but in the Tuileries, which he has received as the heir of the French kings. General, as the worthiest, as the greatest, the most powerful and the most signally called, you have come into the possession of the inheritance of the kings of France, for to this inheritance belongs also the crown of France. Why do you refuse this while accepting all the rest? And what if I show you that I do not want it, asked Bonaparte, and what if I should tell you that I do not feel myself worthy to assume the whole undivided inheritance of the Bourbons? Would you be foolish and senseless enough to believe such an idle tale? Consul, 
You have already done so many things that are wonderful and have brought so many magic charms to reality that I no longer hold anything to be impossible as soon as you have laid your hand upon it. And therefore you hold a concealed magician's wand which you propose to draw forth at some decisive moment and present to me as the cross is presented to Beelzebub in the tale. I do not understand you, Consul, replied Fouché, with the most innocent air in the world. Well then, I will make myself intelligible. The magician's wand which you are keeping concealed is called Louis the Seventeenth. Oh, do not shake your cunning head. Do not deny with your smooth lips which once uttered the death sentence of Louis the Sixteenth, and which now are used to teach a fool and a pretender that he is the son of the murdered king. Truly it is ridiculous. The regicide wants to atone for his offence by hatching a fable and making a king out of a mannequin. General, no fable, I know a mannequin, cried Fouché with a threatening voice. The son of the unfortunate king is alive, and... Ah! interrupted Bonaparte triumphantly. So you confess at last. You reveal your great secret at length. I have driven the sly fox out of his hole, and the hunt can now begin. It will be a hot chase, I promise you, and I shall not rest till I have drawn the skin over the ears of the fox, or until he says he's Pécardie. "'asked Fouché with a gentle smile. "'Until he delivers to me the changeling "'whom he wants to use as his deus ex machina,' "'replied Bonaparte. "'My dear sir, it helps you not at all "'to begin again this system of lies. "'Your anger has betrayed you, "'and I have succeeded in outwitting the fox. "'The so-called son of the king is alive "'that has escaped you and you cannot take it back.' "'No, it cannot be taken back,' "'replied Fouché with a sigh.' I have disclosed myself, or rather I have been outwitted. You are, in all things, a hero and a master, cunning as much as in bravery and discretion. I bow before you as before a genius whom God himself has sent upon the earth to bring the chaotic world into order again. I bow before you as before my lord and master, and instead of opposing you, I will henceforth be content with being your instrument." provided that you will accept me as such. That is, Fouché, provided that I will fulfil your conditions, cried Bonaparte with a shrug. Very well, name your conditions. Without circumlocution, what do you demand? A consul, in order that we may understand one another, we must both be open and unreserved. Will you permit me to be free with you? Certainly, replied Bonaparte with a condescending nod. Consul, you have thrust me aside. You have no longer confidence in me. You have taken from me the post of Minister of Police and given it to my enemy, Arrhenier. That has given me pain. It has injured me, for it has branded me before all the world as a useless man whom Bonaparte suspects. Your enemies have believed that my alienation from you could conduce to their advantage and that out of the dismissed police prefect they might gain an enemy to Bonaparte. Conspirators of all kinds have come to me, emissaries of Count de Lille, deputies from the Royalists in Vendée, as well as from the Red Republicans, by whom you, Bonaparte, are as much hated as by the Royalists, for they will never forgive you for putting yourself at the head of the Republic and making yourself their master. All of these parties have made propositions to me. All of them want me to join them. I have lent my ear to them all. I have been informed of all their plans, 
and am at this hour the sworn ally of both republicans and royalists. Oh, I beg you, continued Fouché's Bonaparte, started up and opened his lips to speak. I beg you, General, hear me to the end and do not interrupt me till I have told you all. Yes, I have allied myself to three separate conspiracies and have become zealous in them all. There is first that of the Republicans who hate you as a tyrant of the Republic. There is, in the second place, the conspiracy of the royalists who want to put the Cantilila on the throne. And third, there is that of the genuine Capitis, who want to make the orphan of the temple Louis the Seventeenth. These three conspiracies have it as their first object to remove and destroy Consul Bonaparte. Yes, to reach this end, the three have united and made a mutual compromise. Whichever party succeeds in murdering you is to come into power, and the others are to relinquish the field to it. And so, if Bonaparte is killed by a Republican dagger, the Republic is to remain at present the recognised form of government. And if the bull of a royalist removes you, the Republicans strike their banner and grant that France shall determine by a general ballot whether it shall be a Republic or a Kingdom. Well... Asked Bonaparte calmly as Fouché closed and cast an inquiring glance at the consul's face, which was, notwithstanding, entirely cold and impenetrable. Well, why do you stop? I did not interrupt you with a question. Go on. I will, consul. I have made myself a member of these three conspiracies, for, in order to contend with the heads of Cerberus, one must have them all joined. And in order to be the conqueror in a great affair, one must know who all his enemies are and what all their plans. I know all the plans of the Allies, and because I know them, it is within my power to bring discontent and enmity among them. Using this end, the third conspiracy, that of the dependence of Louis the Seventeenth, the orphan of the Temple, through sympathy with him, I have divided the party of royalists. I have withdrawn from the Count de Lille many of his important dependents, and even some of the chief conspirators who came to Paris to contend for Louis XVIII have recently in secret bent the knee to Louis XVII and sworn fidelity to him. This is not true, cried Bonaparte vehemently. You are telling me nursery stories with which children may be frightened, but men not. There are no secret meetings in Paris. General, if your minister of police, Rainier, has told you so, he only shows that he is no man to be at the head of the police and knows nothing of the detective service. I tell you, General, there are secret societies in Paris, and I ought to know, for I am a member of four separate ones. Ha! Sir, sneered Bonaparte, you are out of your head. Before you spoke of three conspiracies, and now they have grown to be four. I am speaking now of secret societies, Consul, for not every secret society can be called a conspiracy. Before, when I was giving account of conspiracies, I mentioned three. Now, when we speak of secret societies, I have to mention a fourth. But this does not deserve the name of a conspiracy, for its object is not murder and revolution, nor does it arm itself with daggers and pistols. I should be curious to know the name of your fourth society, cried Bonaparte impatiently. I will satisfy your curiosity, General. 
This fourth secret society bears the name the Bonapartis. Or, allow me to approach you closer that the wolves of the old palace may not hear a word. Or, the imperialists. Bonaparte shrank back and a glow of red passed for a moment over his cheeks. What do you mean by that? I mean by that, General, what I have already said. Your brow is made not to wear laurels alone, but a crown, and there is only one way to destroy the other three conspiracies, the way proposed by the fourth secret society. In order to make the efforts of the Republicans and Royalists ineffective, and to tread them under your feet, France needs an emperor. Do you want to make your mannequin Louis the Seventeenth Emperor of France? No, General, answered Fouché solemnly. No, I want to make Consul Bonaparte Emperor of the French. The Consul trembled, and his eyes flashed through the apartment, the former cabinet of Louis the Sixteenth, as if he wanted to convince himself that no one had heard this dangerous word of the future. Then he slowly bent forward without meeting Fouché's looks, which were intently fixed upon him. A pause ensued, a long, anxious pause. Then Bonaparte slowly raised his eyes again, and now it was filled as with sunlight. Is your fourth secret society numerous? he asked with that magical smile which won all hearts. It comprises artists, poets, scholars, and, above everything else, officers and generals, replied Fouché. It grows more numerous every day, and, as fortunately, I have only been deposed from my place of Minister of Police, but still remain a member of the Senate of the Republic, it has been my effort to gain over, in the Senate, influential members for my secret society of imperialists. If my hopes are crowned with success, the secret society will soon become an open one, and the Senate will apply to you with a public request to put an end to all these conspiracies and intrigues, to place yourself at the head of France and accept the imperial crown which the Senate offers you. But I comprehend your but, Fouché, interrupted Bonaparte eagerly. You want to make your conditions. An imperial crown does not fall direct from heaven upon the head of a man. There must be hands there to take it, and it might happen that they would be crushed by the falling crown. They must be paid for their heroism, therefore. Let us suppose, then, that I give you credence to all your stories, even that about the empire of the future. Tell me now what you demand. General, if I show you and all France by facts that the country is rent by conspiracies, that the cancer of secret societies is eating into the very marrow of the land and imperiling all its institutions, will you confess to me, then, that I am better adapted to be the head of the police than Monsieur Rainier d'Angely, who insists and dares to say to you that there are no secret societies in France? Prove to me by facts the existence of your conspiracies, and I will commission you to help me destroy this hydra's head. Give me the proofs, and you shall be head of police again. Fouché bowed. You shall have the proofs, General, today, at once, provided that we thoroughly understand each other. I am ambitious, General, and I have no wish to be driven back for a single day into nothingness as I should be if my enemies withdraw their confidence in me. Now I am at least a member of the Senate, but if the Senate is dissolved and I should subsequently be deposed again from the head of the police, 
I should be nothing but Fouché. Fouché fallen out of favour. Voilà tout. No, not so, said Bonaparte with a smile. You will always be known as the murderer of the king. That is a fine title for a republican, is it not? Ah, General, I see that you understand me, cried Fouché. We are now talking about a name, a position, a title for me. Provided that here in the Tuileries our throne is re-established, we must have a court again, men with orders, titles and dignities. It is true, said Bonaparte thoughtfully, the world continues to revolve in the same circles of volley and vanity, and after making an effort to withdraw from them, it falls back again into the old roots. Men are nothing but actors, and everyone wants to adorn himself with glistening rags in order to take the first part and have his name go upon the poster of history. Well, how would you be called Fouché if the drama of an empire should really be brought forward upon the great stage of the world? I would like the title of a prince or duke, sire. Bonaparte could scarcely suppress the smile of satisfaction that played over his face. It was the first time that he had ever been addressed as king or emperor, and this sire, which Fouché dropped into the ear of Bonaparte like a sweet poison, flattered his senses and soothed him like delightful music. But the strength of his genius soon resumed its sway, and he broke out into a loud, merry laugh. Confess, Fouché, he cried, that it is comical to hear the consul talking with a senator of the Republic about an empire and ducal titles. Truly, if the strict Republicans of your conspiracy number one should hear this, they would be justified in accusing us as traitors and conspirators. We must get the start of them. We must accuse them, if we possess secure means to do so. I possess them, and I will give them to you, Consul Bonaparte, as soon as the Emperor of the future assures me of a princely title, in addition to the chieftaincy of police. <laughs> Very well, said Bonaparte, laughing. The Emperor of the future promises you that as soon as he is able to bake a batch of these delicacies, he will put his chief of police in the oven and roar him out as a prince or a duke. The Emperor of the future gives you his word of honour that he will do it. Are you satisfied now, my Lord Republican? Sire, completely satisfied, said Fouché, bowing low. And now, let us talk together seriously, said Bonaparte. You have spoken of conspiracies. You assert that they exist, but do not forget that you have promised me tangible proofs. Understand me well, tangible proofs. That is... It is not enough for me to see the papers and the lists of conspirators who have escaped into foreign lands. I want persons, men of flesh and blood, traitors whom I may hang, not in effigy, but in reality, and who may serve as a warning example to the whole herd of conspirators and put an end forever to this nonsense. I am wearied of being perpetually threatened by traitors, poisoned daggers, air guns, plots and intrigues of all kinds. It is time to hunt down the chief men of these bravos who have been sent here from England, Germany, Russia and Italy. And I have had enough of illustrating the old proverb, hang the little thief and let the great one run. I mean to have the great thief and to hang him, for that is the only way of intimidating these fellows and inspiring them with respect. Sire, you shall have your great thieves, said Fouché with a smile. Give them into my hands. And I promise you they shall never escape, cried Bonaparte eagerly. It is high time to make an example. 
and show these people at last that I claim the right of paying back. The Count de Lille and the Duc d'Angeon are always egging their conspirators upon me. They appear to have no other aim than to get rid of me and are unwearied with their daggers, infernal machines and counterplots. But their own persons and those of their highest helpers always remain beyond reach. They arrange their plans always at a safe distance and risk nothing by this. For if we take some of their subordinate tools and punish them, they make an outcry about barbarity and cruelty and appeal to their sacred right of using all means to regain their inheritance and re-establish the throne in France. They do not deny that they would have no conscientious scruples about shedding my blood. Now, why should I have any about shedding theirs? Blood for blood, that is the natural and unavoidable law of retaliation, and woe to him who lays claim to it. These Bourbons do so. I have never injured one of them personally. A great nation has placed me at its head. My blood is worth as much as theirs, and it is time at last that I make it al with theirs. I will no longer serve as a target for all murderers, and then afterward only find the dagger instead of seizing the hands that ply it. Let me once have hold of the hands and all the daggers will disappear forever. I will give these hands into your power, or at least some fingers of them. I want them all, cried Bonaparte eagerly. All the fingers, all the hands. You have spoken of three different conspiracies. I want the leaders of them, and then all others may run. If the Hydra loses its three heads, it must at last die. So give me the three heads, that of the Republicans and of the two Royalist parties. The head of conspiracy number two, I know, it is the Count de Lille. He is the sly spider who always withdraws behind his nets. But I know the hand too. That is set in motion by this head. It is the Duc d'Angean. He is an untiring conspirator, wholly occupied with infernal machines and daggers for me. Ha! Let him take care of himself, this little Duc d'Angean. If I take him, I will exercise the right of retaliation upon him for I'm determined to have peace. We now come to your conspiracy number three, to your deus ex machina, the so-called Louis the Seventeenth. This deus really exists? Yes, General, he exists. End of chapter 31, part one, read by Julie Jackson, Staffordshire, 6th of July, 2021.